If you have your Bible, turn to first, or Second Peter chapter 1, first chapter, verses 19 through 21. We're going to try and finish up this last uh, part of chapter 1 in Second Peter, where we're learning about the more sure word, um, where Peter addresses the relationship of the word of God in the believer's life concerning false teachers. And um, just in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at different texts on God's Word um, and just some of its different uh, qualities, some of the reasons why we have a Bible and some of the things that God wants us to do with our Bibles. In Idaho, we have a lot of Mormons there, and um, I guess uh, Utah got filled up and so they they bled over to Idaho, but there's a lot of them. Uh, We have uh, a huge Mormon population there, and um, there's... uh, a huge Mormon temple that's made out of marble right next to the freeway with a big spire with a gold angel Moroni um, on the top. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite the edifice. And wherever you go, you find Mormons in their, their special underwear. And, you know, they, if you don't know, they wear special underwear and they protect them from things or whatever. And um, you run into them all the time. And recently, Mormonism has made this um, great attempt to try and blend in with Christianity. They want to be considered Christians and called Christians. Of course, the reason to do this is so they can infiltrate Christian circles and draw away more disciples after them. They talk about Jesus dying on the cross. They talk about heaven. They talk about hell. They talk about salvation. And if you weren't familiar with their beliefs, you would think that they were Christians indeed. But it is not until you really study what they believe that you discover that they believe there are many gods. That Jesus is Satan's brother. That... um, He died on the cross because he was persecuted, not for the sins of the world. Um, They have a different definition of heaven, a different definition of hell, a different means to be saved. And because of this, the only way you can protect yourself is to know what the Bible teaches and to not just take them at face value, but to find out what they believe. They say they believe the Bible, but in all matters, when it really comes down to it, they don't. They will tell you, oh yeah, we believe the Bible is God's Word, but when you confront them and show them from the Scriptures why what they believe is false, then this interesting thing happens. They begin to appeal to, as long as it is interpreted correctly, well, who is able to do that? Well, the apostles of the Mormon church. And it gets worse. If you really know your Bible and you really know Mormonism, you can even show them from their own works why what they believe is false. And then if you do this, they bring out their trump card, their last defense, the burning of the bosom. They will tell you, no, I know Mormonism is true because I have prayed about it and God has given me a burning in the bosom. Well, I want you to know, you can get a burning in the bosom from eating too much pizza. (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible does it say a burning in the bosom is the final acid test of truth. And after they resort to this final line of defense, there's not really anything you can do because, you know, what can you tell them? No, you didn't have a burning in the bosom? 
Because the real issue is, is what is the foundation of truth? Is it the writings of the apostles and prophets and the word of God? Or is it an experience? And this is what we find in many cults when it comes right down to it. The Bible is set aside for some sort of experience. And that is what we discover Peter addressing in the text before us today. Now, I just want to give you some quick, quick background so you can see what Peter's doing. We talked about last time how Peter is writing this right before um, the death of Nero, who was persecuting the church probably in 67 or 68 A.D. Nero died in 68 A.D., so somewhere towards the last year of Nero's death, Peter is writing this. And Peter knows that he is going to die. He says so in verse 14 of chapter 1. And so he's writing this last letter, it's kind of his last will and testament to the church. And he is disturbed because he sees all of these false teachers that Satan is raising up to corrupt the gospel and to corrupt the sound doctrine found in the scriptures. And he's really concerned. And so what he does is he writes this letter to try and equip the saints in Asia Minor to defend themselves or to avoid being deceived by false teachers. And that is what the entire book is about. And so the first thing he addresses is this whole notion of God's Word. He knows that false teachers will come in and come um, rise up from among the believers. As Paul said in Acts 20, it's kind of like dust in your house. Um, You don't have to invite dust in. It just comes in and gets all over everything. And that's how it is in the church. Dust comes in. The dust of false doctrine comes in. It either comes in from among the church or from without the church, but you don't have to say, hey, um, you know, uh, come on into my house. It does automatically. And false teachers, they don't walk around with big signs saying, hi, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to deceive you so you can end up in hell. They don't do that. No, they always come in very craftily, very um, uh, shifty-like and sneak in and build relationships and then try and draw away people after themselves. And so Peter now is kind of working to help the believers. Now, we noticed last week as we looked through chapter 1, looking at the context coming up to our passage, that there is this emphasis on the knowledge of God's Word. I mean, it's all over. If you look in verses 2, 5, and 8, he talks about knowledge. He talks about true knowledge in verses 3 and 8. He talks about God's precious and magnificent promises in verse 3. He refers back to these things in verses 10 through 12. And then he talks about knowing the truth and being established in the truth in verse 12. And the importance of being reminded and calling God's truth to mind in verses 13 and 15. So, I mean, he is talking about God's word from stem to stern in this first part. And the text we are looking at today, he's also talking about the word of God. But there is this little historical episode that he throws in there. And last week we find out why that is. Peter knows that false teachers will deceive with false doctrine. And he is trying to prepare himself to um, prepare the Christians to prepare themselves for these people who will be coming in. I talked in the first service. I said, um, you know, let's say you had the Nintendo 64 and um, your friend had the Dreamscape. And one of the kids came up and said, no, it's Dreamcast. Sorry. Um, and uh, you were trying to argue with your friend about why, you know, your Netscape uh, Dreamcast or your Nintendo 64 was better. Well, you have to know 
why it's better. You have to be able to anticipate what they are going to say. And so Peter, in this text here, is looking at false teachers and thinking to himself, okay, how do they work? How do they deceive? And we saw last week that they what? They do great signs and false wonders to deceive even the elect. That Satan will come on the scene in the last days with great signs and false wonders. That the people who thought they were saved and weren't saved in Matthew 7 came on the scene. And did we not perform miracles and cast out demons and heal the sick and perform any miracles in your name? And he said, I never knew you. So there's always these experiences that often come along with false teaching. And those experiences are, are focused on... Over and against the Scriptures. It's not that experiences are bad, but when they contradict the Word of God, they should not be trusted in, ever. And so that's what he's writing here. Peter is doing what he knows is going to help the believers. So the first whole chapter is about God's Word. And after he talks about this incredible experience they had on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, how Jesus was peeled back in his second coming glory, and they saw Moses and Elijah and heard God himself speak from heaven, he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than what? Than even the most incredible experience people ever had which is that Mount of Transfiguration experience. Recently at the church I used to pastor at in Boise, we got a copier. And they had this deal that if you get the copier, you get a free TV with it. And you know, if we were to call up the copier people and just say, we'll have the free TV, but uh, you can just keep the copier. We don't want to get that right now. See, they don't go for that. Now, you see, the TV is the bait. And the copier is the hook. And that is how false teachers work. They always give you some sort of pleasure, some sort of uh, blessing, um, some sort of good experience, and then comes the hook. I want to show you how this is. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. Right after our text, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be, will also be, false teachers among you. Notice Peter doesn't say there might be. He says there will be. And look at verse 2. Many will follow after their sensuality. There is one of their baits. And then he talks about, in verse 3, greed, that is, money, a desire for money. A characteristic of false teachers is their emphasis on money. With their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Look at verse 7. And if you rescued righteous laws oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, this is another thing. Look at verse 10. And especially those who indulge in its flesh and in its corrupt desires, and those who revile angelic majesties, and they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go down to verse um, uh, 13, the bottom of verse 13, their deceptions, they carouse with you. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. I mean, they're always looking for um, sexual immorality. Um, greed, he mentions again in verse 14. All the way through, he mentions all of these things that false teachers do so that the believers can know a false teacher when they see one. And then he also says, look down in chapter 3, after he talks to them about the purpose of writing the letter, which is so they would remember um, the words spoke beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior Jesus, or Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles in verse 2. He says, know this first of all, verse 3, that in the last days mockers will come. This is another group of false teachers. They mock about Jesus coming back. 
And after he talks about those mockers and he encourages them to do what's right again, he says, verse 17, um, after talking about how they distort the Scriptures in verse 16, he says in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Now this is like right at the end of his letter. This is his final remark. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Now, in contrast to that, to being led astray and deceived, he says, but grow. And then he lists two things by which we grow. Notice what the text says. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we protect ourselves from being deceived by growing in grace and knowledge of the Word of God. And Peter, knowing that, writes this letter to equip the people. I mean, if you look at the back of your arm, most of us have this little funny round scar back there. That is where we got a smallpox vaccination. And that little vaccination equips our body to defend itself against smallpox. Well, in the same way, Peter here is giving us a false teacher vaccination so that we would be equipped to resist the false teachings that creep into the church. And so he gives this experience, this incredible experience he has, and he says, as we looked at last week, more literally, we have the even more sure prophetic word at the beginning of verse 19. And then he says, to which you do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now people, this is one of the greatest all-time texts in the Bible on what is called the inspiration of the Scriptures. And uh, today we're going to start out by looking at the second point in the text, which is, what are we to do now that we have the more sure Word of God? I mean, okay, so we have a Bible, so it's more sure, so now what? What are we supposed to do? And notice what the text says. Just right into verse 19 a little bit, to which you do well to pay attention. And just stop right there. What is this pay attention stuff? Now, what's that mean? You know, right now, if somebody were to lead them to the Lord just out there in the parking lot and they came in here and sat down and say, pay attention to your Bible. What, what's that guy going to think? He's going to go, what's that mean? Should I just stare at it for a while? I mean, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Since this word pay attention is a key exhortation in the text, the word pay attention literally means to pay attention, to heed, to um, be devoted to, to hold on to, to attend to. In Hebrews 7.13, it's used of the, uh, the um, priests who would attend to the sacrificial system. And in 1 Timothy 4.13, it's used of those who attend to, it says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. It is not just an acknowledgement of, oh yeah, you know, we need to read the Bible, but it is a focus, an attention a commitment to something. You know, when you tell your kids, now pay attention to me, um, you don't just mean hear what I say, do you? No, what you mean is, you better listen to what I say and then go do it. 
You don't want them to just hear the words. You want them to hear the words so as to obey. And that's what he's saying here. You need to pay attention. And then, just so you know, this is a present active participle. And that means this. You are to always be paying attention to the Word of God. It's not just a one-time shot where, you know, you kind of just look at your Bible and think, oh yeah, well, you know, now I've read my Bible, now I've paid attention to it. No, it's present active, which means you are to always be in the state of paying attention to the Word of God over and over again every day, day after day, month after month. And that is what we are called to do by God, is to pay attention to His Word. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, just... How exactly is this done? Let me give you eight things. Just how do you pay attention to the Word of God? First, read your Bible. Read your Bible. You know, if I was to ask you, did, did you read your Bible last week? I mean, would you say that you regularly read the Bible? You need to. You need to regularly read the Bible. I'm not saying that if you miss a day, you know, you've cause the unpardonable sin. I'm just saying that as a habit, you should always be reading the Bible. Why? Because that's how we're saved. That's how we grow. That's how we know about Jesus. That's how we know about God. That's how we know to love one another. That's how we know how to worship God. It all comes from the Scriptures. And in addition to that, not only reading, but studying your Bible. And this is what I mean by that. You know, some people just read their Bible. And reading your Bible is kind of like walking in front of your mirror at home to get ready. You know, you walk by the mirror in the morning, and, you know, I've got short hair, so I could do that. And I still look okay. I mean, some people would argue. The whole point is, is if you stop and you look at a mirror from, let's say, 20 feet away, you can see that you might need some help. But if you go closer to the mirror, you start seeing more and more, don't you? And the closer you get, the more detail you see. And the more you realize, I really need help. And that's how it is with the Scriptures. If you're just running by the mirror of God's Word, you're going to look fine. But if you stop, and you study, and you get close, you will see, I need lots of help. And that is what we are to do, is to pay attention. Not just read, but to study. Take any topic you're interested in, any sin you're struggling with, anything you want to know about God, about Christ, about anything, and just you know, get a concordance and look up cross-references and study and study and dig as hidden treasure in silver, in silver and gold, like Proverbs 2 says. Also, memorize Scripture. Hide God's Word in your heart. So that it's always there. So whenever you need it, God's Word is there. It's so, it's so great to have God's Word in your heart. Also, come to church. Why? So you can hear a sermon. Why? So you can go to Sunday school. Why? So you can talk to people out there about what you've been reading and what, hear what they've been reading and what they've been studying. And, and you share God's Word by fellowship, by just talking about what God has done in your life and relating that to the Scriptures. That's how you grow. Also, listen to sermons on tape or radio. You know, so often we just drive around and we listen to, to music all the time, and that's fine, but, you know, sometimes you've got to try to listen to the tape. You know, get the tape for whoever you like to listen to or listen to some Christian radio. You know, when I'm in the yard and I'm doing yard work, I just, you know, get my old Walkman out and pop a tape in there or somebody and plug it in and listen. 
Why? Because I want to get more of God's Word in my heart. Join a Bible study. Another good thing. The sixth thing, you join a Bible study. It's so great to sit around with people who are clueless like yourself. I mean, we're all just, you know, come on. People think, oh yeah, well you know everything. It's like, huh, hardly. Uh, I'm desperately trying to find out what I'm going to know on Sunday every week. And, you know, you go to a Bible study and somebody there, the leader, has prepared and has studied and you can come there and you can talk and ask questions and find out what the Bible says and what it means and how it applies to your life. Man, it's great. And then read books saturated with the Scriptures. You know, one of the things people do, and they're nice to me, and um, they give me lots of books because I know I'm the pastor or whatever. And um, they give me books. And I want you to know... Um, you know, in case you're thinking of one I need, uh, I pop it open and I look, and if it doesn't have a lot of scriptures in it, I don't read it. You know why? Because there are so many really good books in there that are just saturated with the Word of God that I don't have time to read ones that, you know, just have one verse in them. And so get books written by godly men and women that are saturated with the scriptures. And finally, and this is probably one of the most important things, obey what you learn as you do those first seven things. That's what it means to pay attention to the Word of God. And notice the text says that you do well to pay attention to the Word of God. It's good for you. When I was a teenager, there um, came a time early in my teens when I decided that I would like all kinds of food. I mean... I was so hungry all the time that I couldn't get enough to eat. And those of you with teenagers are saying, Amen. And my dad would, would laugh at me. He said, What do you mean? He says, Your shoes are too small. Well, we, they're, they're, my toes are at the end, Dad. He says, Well, I just caught you those a month ago. I mean, it was, it was not five weeks ago I bought those for you. Well, feel, Dad. You know, my toes are blowing out the end. And I decided, you know, I am now going for quantity, not quality in order to survive. One year I grew seven inches. And uh, my brothers um, said that I had a physique like a Q-tip. And they told me that if I didn't wear rocks in my pockets, I'd blow away. And that I needed to walk around outside with my arms out in case I stepped on a crack so I wouldn't disappear. But in order to grow up, I had to lead a lot of food. Everything I could get. And that's what I did. And that's what you need to do to grow as a Christian. You can't say, well, I'm just, I'm only going to just read out of Malachi. No, you need to read everything. The whole council. Read the Psalms. Read the Proverbs. Read the Gospels. Read the Word of God. Skip around. Get a balanced meal. Don't just eat little tweakies here and there, but eat the whole thing. Everything. Don't be picky. Get all you can get. And if you don't, if you just barely eat, you, your spiritual life will be Q-tip-like. And you'll be spiritually skinny if you were to just eat once a week when you came here on Sunday. And you know, some of you, maybe, are thinking to yourself, well, am I continually in the Word? Am I always in God's Word on a regular basis. You know, if you're not, you're probably going to have problems. You're going to make decisions that probably aren't real good. And, and when 
problems come, you won't be able to handle them very well. You'll, you'll fret and you'll worry and, and be anxious. Why? Because you don't understand the sovereignty of God that we sang about this morning. How He is in control. And even though uh, all these trials come upon you, God is up there and nothing will ever happen to you that God does not allow. That He does not give you the grace to handle. And this is why it is so important to stay in the Word of God and pay attention to it. One of the great texts that I like to read, Psalm 1. Turn back to Psalm 1. Here's the first three verses of Psalm 1, the psalm that kicks off the psalms. In the first three verses, this is great. It tells us why the Word of God does this good. You do well to pay attention. Notice what it says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This person is doing what is right. He is obeying God. And look at verse 2. But, instead of doing those sinful things, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his, uh, his law, he meditates day and night. He pays attention to it. And notice how it does him well. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. In whatever he does, he prospers. And this does not mean that, you know, if you are regularly in the Word, that all of a sudden all your problems are going to go away. No. What it does mean, though, is that when you are regularly in the world, those problems which will come to you, you will be able to handle better. You will be able to avoid some of them altogether. And when you're walking according to God's Word, then you have God's Spirit helping you. But God's Spirit is not going to help you to disobey. So you have the blessing of God, God's Holy Spirit, because you're walking in the Spirit according to the Scriptures. And it will be well with you. And, implied, if you do not pay attention, it will not be well. Then he gives this little illustration. Notice what the text says. You do well to pay attention as, notice this, to a lamp shining in a dark place. To a lamp shining in the dark place. You know, the world is a dark place. And it's not dark because, you know, the sun isn't out. And it's not dark because there isn't artificial lights. It's dark because Satan is the god of this world who is now working in the sons of disobedience. It is dark because he is the prince of the power of the air. He is corrupting this world. And for a time, God has allowed him to do this. And there is so much evil and so much wickedness out there that you need a light shining in a dark place. Because if you don't, you will fall into many pits and snares and traps and it's not very fun. If you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, there is the story there of a man named Christian. And Christian, at the beginning of the book, who lives in the city of destruction, it's an allegory, is convicted when he reads this book. And the book warns him that he is going to be judged because of his sin. And he is really distraught. And his sin is pictured as this huge burden that is on his back. And he is weeping in, in the first part of the book because he is so distraught that he knows he's going to be judged. He knows he's living in the city of destruction. He doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, 
someone shows up, a man named Evangelist. And this is what Bunyan writes. Then I saw a man approach him and heard him say, My name is Evangelist. May I ask why you are so disturbed? And he answered, Sir, I understand from this book I hold in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment, and I am not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Why not willing to die, asked Evangelist, seeing this life is attended with so many evils. The man answered, Because I am afraid of this burden on my back, which will sink me lower than the grave, that I shall fall into hell. And if I am not prepared to die, I am not ready for judgment and to go there to execution. The thoughts of these things make me weep. Well, if that is your condition, said Evangelist, then why do you stand there? Because I do not know where to go, said Christian. Then Evangelist gave him a scroll which had these words written on it. Flee from the wrath to come. And having read these words, the man looked earnestly at Evangelist and asked, But where do I go? And pointing with his finger over a very wide field, he said, Do you see that little gate yonder on the far side of the field? No, he said. Then, do you see that tiny shining light? I think I do, he answered. Now keep your eye on that light and you will go straight to the little gate at which when you knock, you will be told what you must do. And so Christian heads out with his eye focused on the light and he gets eventually to the gate. Now he takes his eye off of the light and falls into the swamp on the way, but he gets there. And finally gets on the path to where he can get his burden released at the cross and get to the celestial city. If you've never read it, you need to. It's a great book. The whole point is this. That in this book, Bunyan is trying to say those who make it to heaven keep their eye fixed on the light of God's word. And if you don't, you won't get there. That is why Psalm 105 says, which we all know, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It shows you how to walk in this earth so you don't fall on your face and stumble off a cliff and hit your head on a branch. And if you are one of those people who isn't reading God's word, you will fall off the cliff of immorality or stumble off the cliff of pride or hit your head on a branch of doubt or whatever. You will have that happen to you. Why? Because you aren't keeping your eyes fixed on the light. Now, one may think to themselves, well, just how long do I have to pay attention to the Word of God? I know it says here to always be paying attention, but, you know, hey, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. As a matter of fact, I've been a Christian, you know, for 60 years. And so, it seems to me that I've kind of paid my dues. I've I've absorbed quite a bit of the Bible, and now, you know, I can live off of what I've already learned. Well, what's neat about it is Paul or Peter tells us in this text just how long we are to pay attention continually to the Word. And he says this, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. In other words, you are to continually being paying attention to God's Word until the day dawns. What day is that? The day of 
the second coming or the day where you die and go to be with Christ, which would cut that short. And so, as a Christian, you never get to a place where you can say, well, hey, you know, I've learned the Bible and now I don't need to go to church. I I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to study anymore because I already know. Well, that just proves you don't know because if you did know, you'd keep studying it because God tells you you need to. Look over here at chapter 1 again and look at at verse um, 12. We looked at this last week. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. Peter says, listen, I'm going to remind you of something. Not only do you already know it, you are already established in it. Why? He goes on to say, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And then look at verse 15. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. There never comes a time when you've arrived at your understanding of the Scriptures. Ever. You can study this book all your life and never grasp every, everything. And so don't ever come to a place where you think you've kind of paid your Bible study dues. It never is paid. You have to study constantly. And even those things you know and are established in, you need to be reminded of. Because that's what God says. But once Christ comes, or we go to be with him, things change. That's why he says, until the day dawns and the morning stars. I mean, what's it going to be like once Jesus comes, you die to go and be with the Lord? Let me just read you 1 John 3, 2 and remind you of a few texts. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. There will come a day when you will be like Jesus. And it's not that God's word all of a sudden will be out of date and we can throw it away. But you see, Peter is talking about false teachers here, isn't he? He's talking about equipping yourself so not to, so not to be deceived. And he says, listen, there will come a day when you don't need to pay attention and constantly study to avoid false teachers. Why? Because you will be perfect. You will be like Christ. You will see Jesus face to face. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 1, 6? He who began a good at work in you will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What is he saying there? God is working in us now, but there will come a day when we are perfected. Not only perfected in position, but practically. You will be sinless. You will be free from all sin. You will be bulletproof to temptation. You will be with Jesus, perfect, holy, face to face for eternity. And this is why he says, until that day. If you have a question, you don't need to open a book. You can talk to the incarnate Word of God Himself, the King of Kings, and ask Him any question you want. You will see Him face to face. You see the difference there? And that is why he's saying, but until then... Until you're perfect, pay attention to this book. It's so critical that you do. When Jesus comes, a new era will dawn. There will be perfect truth over the face of the earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and sin will be judged. And then we'll have God Himself being our light. But don't think to yourself, I've studied enough, because you haven't until the day dawns. 
Now, the third point, look at the test that we're going to look at, is know why your Bible is more sure. We've seen that the Bible is more sure. We've seen what we are to do with it, that is, pay attention to it. And now, we're going to look at why your Bible is more sure. He says, but know this first of all, and whenever you read that in the Bible, just, you know, pinch yourself. Okay. First of all, know this foremost is what he's saying. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What he's saying here is this. Whenever you run into somebody who says, you know, I alone am able to interpret the Bible. I am the guru, the whatever. And you can't. You know, when somebody says that, run! Because that is an indicator of a false teacher. They think they have a corner on the Scriptures. And when you look at the different cults, you'll find this to be true. Yes, the Bible is true as long as it's interpreted by our guy, or our gal, or our group. But you can't get the truth out of there, but we can. John, the apostle, made it clear in 1 John 2.27, he says, listen, you don't have anyone any need for anyone to teach you, but as the Spirit teaches you, or His anointing teaches you, and is true and is not a lie. And what John is dealing with in 1 John 2.27 is this Gnostic cult where people would you know, get this um, um, uh, involved with this group of these people where you kind of worked your way up into these higher levels of knowledge and pretty soon you were the super knowledge people. And you had the inside ability to get stuff out of the Scriptures that no one else could. And he says, listen, you don't have anyone need for these super anointed people letter to teach you. You have an anointing. You have the Holy Spirit yourself, and the Holy Spirit will help you interpret the Word of God. Now, he's not saying in this text that there's no need for pastors. Okay. Ephesians 4:11 makes it clear that God has given some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. But he is saying, if you encounter people who say they have an inside track on interpreting the Scriptures, run. You see, as a believer, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, all things being equal, and what I mean by that is this. If you have studied, and let's say you learned Hebrew, and you learned Greek, and you had just as much as education as someone else, All things being equal, you can understand anything anyone else can understand. There is no corner on the truth for those who are believers and have God's Spirit in them. This is clearly taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul is addressing those who um, need to know the truth. And he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. He says, You have the Spirit. And you can know God's Word. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Do you realize this? I don't care if there is a genius who has memorized the entire Bible. If he doesn't know Jesus, he cannot know the things of God like you can if you just came to Christ five minutes ago. In the very next verse, in 2.14 of 1 Corinthians, it says, The natural man, or the unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit, and he cannot understand them, for they are foolishness to him. But you, because you have God's Spirit, you can understand things. You can know God's Word. And this is what's neat about being a Christian. It's knowing 
the God of the universe through His revelation, His Word. And no prophecy, he says, is a matter of one's own private interpretation. And then we come to the last verse. A verse that uh, is so loaded, we could have a whole other sermon on this, but we're just going to... We're going to hit this later some more in different passages. But notice what he says in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, what? Spoke from God. Spoke from God. This people is the clearest text found anywhere in the Bible on the inspiration of Scriptures. Dr. Charles Ryrie defines inspiration this way. Inspiration may be defined as God superintending human authors so that, using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his message to man in the words of their original writings in the Bible. God superintended but did not dictate. His superintendence was sometimes very direct and sometimes less direct, but was always there so that he guarded the writers of Scripture from guarding writing inaccurately. He used human authors, including their own individual styles. They were not stenographers, but received dictation. uh, They were not stenographers receiving dictation. The result is that the combination of the human and divine author recorded the original manuscripts without error. So what he's saying here is that God's Word is the result of men that God himself moved through. So these people still got to have their own styles and their own experience, but yet they wrote things that were perfect and without error, the Word of God. You know, we call this Bible the Word of God. We don't call it the multi-author work of Jewish authors. It's the Word of God. And even though it was written over a thousand years by a whole bunch of different people in a whole bunch of different places, it is written by the one God, first and foremost, who moved through men to write down what he wanted to say. Now, in closing, I want to just give you some great texts on this. And, you know, you might want to, um, you might want to just write these down because I've got them printed out here and, and you can't go this fast. Mark 12:36. Jesus says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, then he quotes Psalm 110.1. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.16, it says, the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David, then quotes Psalm 69.25 and 109.8. The Holy Spirit foretold. In Acts 4.25, it says, the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, said then quotes Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And in Acts 28, 25 and 27, it says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, then quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And in Hebrews 3, 7, it doesn't even mention anyone else. It just says, the Holy Spirit says, and then quotes Psalm 95, 7 and 8. And in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, and then quotes Jeremiah 31, 33 through 35. And you need to ask yourself this. So was it Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, or God? And the answer is yes. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There's one text I want you to look at. To look at it together. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 Another key text on the Scriptures. And here, 
Paul is exhorting Timothy in Paul's last letter to Timothy that he would listen and continue in the things that he had learned in verse 14. And he says in verse 15, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. When Timothy was young, all he had was the Old Testament. That's what he was taught. And he's saying, you have this. And he says, verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profit for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This word, all Scripture is God-breathed, is a compound word, theos and pneumatos. The word we get pneumatic from and, you know, pneumonia and things like that. It's God-breathed, with some translations just translated directly. And that is why this book is so much different than any other book. It's God's Word. So, people, I want you to leave here today knowing that God's Word is more sure than any experience everybody, anybody could ever give you. You will leave here with an understanding that if you continually read, study, meditate, and obey the Word of God, it will be well with you. And know that if you are a believer, you don't need any special interpreter to interpret the Scriptures for you. All things being equal, you study hard. You can find out whatever there is to know in this book. And finally, know that this book is not a work of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's pray.